from beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Hi, welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and then talk about what was good and what was great. I'm Surrey and this is Mark. Hiya, it's episode 89. Hi, I just thought I'd jump in here. We do have a slight numbering of episodes issue. Due to scheduling difficulties, we've had to bring forward episode 89, which is this one you're listening to now, and skip episode 88. Episode 88 will be coming to you shortly. Don't you worry about that. So otherwise, continue and enjoy episode 89. And we are talking about the science fiction film, The Day Earth Caught Fire. Came out in 1961. In this episode, we'll reveal what we thought about the film, the ins and outs of narrative and film language, plus a nice deep dive into a specific piece of science that the filmmakers are proposing. Maybe something to do with the Earth being on fire would be my guess, but stay tuned to later in the episode when Surrey will talk all things sciencey from the day the Earth caught fire. This film was directed by Val Guest, who also co-wrote it with Wolf Mankovitz. The good old Wolf. Wolf. And Val Guest. I said that. Written and... Okay. But anyway, <laughs> this is your chance to go back and watch this film because we have our spoiler warning. We're warning. going to talk all about every feature of this warning, film. Warning. Go back and watch it. It's a pretty cool film it's if you awesome don't movie. mind the pun. And then tune back in and find out what we have to say about it. This movie is on fire. It is. It's fire. <laughs> it's hot. It's hot and spicy. The British science fiction disaster film... Uh, the day the earth caught fire is where the weather turns apocalyptic. Sorry. It, it turns very suddenly hot in Britain where we are based in this film, but it also demonstrates it's extremely cold in New York. Yes. So that, And that's unusual, of course, because they should both either be in summer or winter, not one getting too hot and the other one too cold. So the weather is the bad guy in this film um, due to the fact the Americans and the Russians both detonated a nuclear bomb at the same time and this awful weather starts kicking it up a gear, breaking all sorts of records, causing all sorts of disasters and really not making it very nice to live in London where the film is set. Um, the key characters realise that... The atomic explosions set the Earth on a weird 11-degree tilt 11-degree tilt and an 11-degree shift in the orbit or something. started to shift the actual Earth towards the sun, causing these apocalyptic weather changes. Uh, the story focuses in on an alcoholic, divorcee, depressed journalist at the Daily Mail who slowly uncovers the truth of the story by cleaning up his own life to only realise how helpless it is for the masses in this situation. So what was your number one takeaway 
from the day the earth caught fire, sorry. Well, my number one takeaway is that in London there's something called heat mist. <laughs> heat mist, yeah. Which... It's moist. I've... <laughs> It, it, it's yeah, I realised that I'd never even thought about that or heard of it, but as soon as it was mentioned, I, I realised that I guess it must be a real thing. Yeah. Just for us like, down under. Because of the, thing. the atmospheric conditions for, say, fog or something mm. are similar in that if you have the um, uh, warm air suddenly hitting a cold patch, yeah. then you get the humidity squeezed out of the air and you get fog. And we don't, yeah, we get that a little bit sometimes inland here. Yeah. But along the Thames there where you've got this river inlet and you get a uh, a cool day turning to then a hot day, you end up with suddenly this um, you know, water that's been sitting around on the streets and everything evaporating into like a low-laying fog. And it was, I don't know, it was a revelation to me. I went, yeah, oh, wow, you actually have enough water lying around to have it visible in the air. Mm. So, you know, folks that live, say, in Portugal and, say, most of California and, you know, Arizona, mm. you probably would be equally shocked to hear of this phenomena that there's water that can just, you know, appear. Mm. Wow, okay. Wow. So, but it was interesting and uh, I've... That really shouldn't have been a takeaway from this film, but it's educational. This film for sorry, it was. It, it, <laughs> uh, I had never thought about it because when in this film the heat mist is coming in, I thought it was a sort of a slightly dodgy special effect of a wave, like a tidal wave roaring right, up the river, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was going to you know wash everyone away. No. Which why it, it didn't quite make sense the the reactions people were having initially. Mm. Um, turns out it was just like a really big, heavy, thick mist that was coming in. Surprise! But there you go. I mean, this isn't. Uh, there's probably those people in London going, "You've never heard of a heat mist? <laughs> what about a pea soup of fog?" And you're like, "Well, okay, I've flown in an aeroplane that went through a cloud once. <laughs> Not here in WA. We don't get those clouds. I mean, we get aeroplanes." Hmm. Um, yes. So there you go. <laughs> it's very educational. I promise the film is much cooler than what Sari's making it sound. Out hey, to me. if you were me, you'd be thinking that was very <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, of course, that was the number one takeaway from this is the. Oh, well, that's a number two takeaway. Yeah, the number two takeaway here was the <laughs> interesting take on the male gaze and gender roles in the 1960s Britain. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I was discussing this with a fellow film aficionado after the film about this and watching some of the late 90s, early noughties sort of action films mm. nowadays, you sort of cringe a bit at the way women are treated and the way men are sort of portrayed. Mm. And whilst in this 1961 this film is, mm. there's obviously male gaze here and sort of... But it's really obvious and... Oddly enough, not so creepy in its honesty. Yeah. As in, uh, you know, the lady reaches over the table to get the piece of paper and it's not like, you know, that little heated sort of heavy breathing and and the slow pan close-up. The guys actually do look across and and openly admire her bottom and sort of nod to one another and, you know, there's sort of, oh, hmm, fit, you know, and and then she gets back up and hands the thing back and they nod and smile and and yeah you sort of go okay that's it's kind of 
it's a bit over the top there, but it it lacked the the creepy voyeurism of the late nineties, early noughties. Uh, I think so. That was pretty good too. Yeah, it was definitely. I noticed that in terms of they kind of were referencing the characters gazing, but it wasn't the voyeuristic look of mm. just the camera gazing. Yeah, it didn't. Like, it didn't it make didn't... me feel dirty. No. <laughs> it made me look at these two guys and go. Okay, you're from the '60s, obviously. Yeah, like it's a, but it, but even that itself, and I think in that scene you're talking about, he Jennings, the main character, also makes a reference to her, and she, like, she's actually quite quick witted and gets back at him. So mm. it's it's he's the one left looking a bit shoddy. Whereas, as you're saying, if you do take something very more in the '90s, '80s, whatever, maybe even to still today, you get those voyeuristic. Looks where the woman is totally, you know, um, demonized almost. She, yeah, she's being groped by the camera. <laughs> she is. And yeah. as an audience member, you kind of feel a little bit dirty. Like You do. You go, Unless oh. it's that kind of movie. And then you're yeah. like, oh, yeah. Bring uh, it on. <laughs> but then you, you bring back a bit of honesty there, you know. Totally. And that's what they did here. It wasn't the camera was just actually observing this kind of. And, and it wasn't so much that he was being super seedy. He was just being a male of the 1960s. But the yeah. woman. I liked that she was quipping him back and giving it back to him. You know? oh, yeah. She wasn't she was, just a dotting, oh, guys no, no, will be she, guys. She, she you know, was that, that um, who's that uh, um, famous Hollywood actress who was known for her. Marilyn Monroe? No. Yeah. I mean, she was fantastic, of course, but no, um, it's like, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm going to lose that one. Okay, it's famous name. You'd recognise. Just pretend I said this really famous woman oh, her. name that you know she's famous for her rather sharp-witted comebacks, particularly to men that right. kind of put them in the place. But I can't remember who it is now. Mm. Uh, I'll if maybe, you're out there and you know who Surrey is, kind I'll of edit, half I'll edit it back in there and slip my mind for the time know. being. But uh, anyway, Send me a message. Let, let's move on, <laughs> shall we, from this? Uh, was this young chaps. Was this a message of a uh, movie of warning hope experiment? Total warning, uh, many ways, I think. There's actually quite a few warnings in this. I mean, global warning. <laughs> uh, it, it It's interesting, I think, because... Well, look, basically straight away, the setup, the the catalyst is that the Russians and the Americans have detonated nuclear bombs during the 60s, Cold War, and that lasted, you know, from the from World War II, didn't it? You know, they kept Pretty going, much. really, the Cold War, World War II, 1940s, all the way up until somewhere in the early no. 90s. 91, that officially. You know, the Russian kind of couldn't keep up with the States and they dropped away and the Cold War kind of, you know, the, the Berlin Wall, all those kind of historical moments. So this is 1961. It's really the heart, I think, Oh the yeah, height of We're this still stuff. having the whole... <coughs> we haven't had the hippies and, yet. The duck and cover yeah. warning messages from the uh, in America where they're yeah. telling school kids to... Cover their heads because that'll save them. <laughs> Go into a desk. Yeah, that'll yeah. save you from a nuclear weapon. Um, so to me, it's so it's the height of that. They've both detonated these bombs and they've screwed up the earth and then the rest of us have to deal with it. Yeah. So to me, it's like that's a pure warning. But then I think when you dig a bit deeper, it's also there's some more specific warnings um, like trying to affect the planet and the weather being the actual outcome you know so here you've got two superpowers fighting it out but then it's actually like the dangers of messing with the environment which that's what i joked about global warming well yeah this 
film almost shows us quite a lot of the things that we're going through now of global warming, really, like really extreme temperatures, to, you know, temperatures being oh, broken, These yeah. this heat mist that, yeah, sure, for Londoners they might have a heat mist, but I think this was an extreme heat, this heat was, mist. For, yeah, normally Four it's... Four stories uh, high. I think that's it, maybe a, a yeah, couple of feet off the ground. Yeah, you couldn't see anything, you know, so... And, you know, then they have that big storm and, and then the weather and then the dust bowl and, you know, like it's all those things that we are seeing slowly with global warming but this obviously good old film has sped it up and i think also that and when i looked into a bit of this that good old wolf mankovitz he was a jewish immigrant to as a kid into the uk he survived the blips okay now in the blips in the uk was when you know the germans were bombing them oh gee that was only like 20 years before this film yeah and it affected a lot of his writing because wolf has written a lot of stuff plays films books he's, he's got a really well-known novel and him and val have also made a couple of films together but this one in particular you know you could see how the way this story is crafted we see the through the eyes of the fact that we're not the government, we're not the military experiences, we're journalists mm. and we're the everyday people, uh, Wolf is kind of basically showing us what it would be like. You know, we're in the dark from the government and we don't know how severe all of this Wait, is going to be. Part of the whole uh, second act is about trying to extract information from the Department of weather or the Bureau of yeah, the Bureau of Atmosphere or, or something. <laughs> where the heck they, and where, then, and then figure out when they do sort of realise the truth, well, what's going to be done about it? And no one really knows, right? Mm. Like no one's revealing it. So I think that, yeah, there's a lot of warnings going on in this. So it's sort of, I th- it's interesting because I think he went through the the blitz and he probably dealt with, you know, the government, the English government information, a power bigger than themselves, the Germans attacking. In this case, it's then the weather attacking. So, yeah, there's a big warning there to me. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's quite classic. It's a, um, a disaster born from humanity's hubris. Yeah. And then we've got to try and negotiate that. That's, I, I think that's a, a common theme in warning stories mm. uh, as opposed to experiments where it might be, you know, people find this interesting situation and it's difficult. Yeah. As opposed to people have set off nuclear bombs and are going to destroy the world. Well, the classic is like a, a zombie film, isn't it, where the scientists were experimenting on monkeys and the monkey bit the scientist or whatever. You know, it's like, we, why were you experimenting that, you know, on this severe virus or whatever? Yeah. So, yeah, and you you let the virus out of the lab, right? Like it's that old... Yeah, the, of, the genie comes out of the bottle. Yeah, yeah, and that's the same here, really. It's like, if what if the Russians and the Americans, which were detonating nuclear bombs at that point in time, what if they did cause this huge oh, and, and they were one-upping each other. The, yeah, that's right. The Russians detonated their Tsar bomber, which is the largest nuke ever dropped. It was mm. 50 megatons. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it was kind of good that they did, though, because the information that came out of that drum, bum, bomb drop basically indicated that there's a maximum useful size of a nuclear weapon for right. its use as a weapon. Because mm. you get to a certain size, like, like yeah, the Saar bomber, you drop that on a city and you level a city. But it's a very big and very heavy bomb, and whoever dropped it is also going to get caught by it. Mm. Uh, a bomb one-fifth the size, like 10 megatons, will do the same job. Yeah. Like, you know, you, the, you, you've you got a an inverse cube law in terms of 
your volumetric displacement of material, which is when you're blowing something up. Mm. The more stuff you got to try and blow up, it's uh, you know one cube less effective each incremental power. So you know you've got to go eight times more powerful to get twice the effect. Mm. And there's so there's a certain point where you just you're better off just cutting it out, cutting it by eight times and only get half the effect. Yeah. Just use two of those. That's a whole lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was good because otherwise it could well have meant that people would keep building bigger and bigger bombs. And, and it was not always better. It just doesn't it doesn't scale that way. In fact, yeah. you're better off with even anyway, we go into the you know, the, the economics of nuclear weapons at another time. But in this film it's suggested that while well, the Russians and the Americans here are kind at, of at the time at the time they were which was what they were doing. In history, they mm. were taking turns blowing up bigger bombs. Yeah. And Mine's bigger than yours. Yeah, and so I guess the, the question there, the what if here scenario is, yeah. well, what if they just kept blowing up ever bigger bombs? Mm. What's that going to do? Yeah, and here it's a total disaster. So we got to see this film uh, part of the Perth Horror Film Festival. So we got to see it on the big screen, which was excellent. Uh, there was a really attentive... Uh, engaged audience, which was great. You know, we all sort of had a bit of a chuckle at a couple of times. I think we probably enjoyed the gaze and the commentary on the male sort of behaviour. I think we, uh, lots of people probably enjoyed the sort of special effects being a little bit old. Um, There's some genuinely good uh, humorous interchange of dialogue as well. Like the dialogue was quite well written. It was very witty and um, you know, machine gun fire sort of back and forth. It was great, actually, mm. the dialogue. Um, and it felt like maybe some people in the audience, this was a film that, that was mentioned that I think they had struggles to get the copy of the film. Like They had permission to play the film, but they had an issue getting it here during yeah. the COVID times and someone in the audience had a copy. So the audience was this kind of mixed bag of people that were really attentive uh, really engaged, um, very much either in love of the genre or, you know, maybe they've seen this film multiple times. For me, it was my first time I've seen this. How about you, sorry? Yeah, absolutely first time. I'd never heard of this before. Mm. Uh, perhaps someone had said the name at some point in my history, but as far as I, I can tell, I've never heard of this film. And what was never your first it. reaction, you think, once those credits rolled? It was, was it was feeling? a mixed bag because initially it comes up and it's a an amber reddish hint hue to the whole thing like mm. it's a black and white film yeah but the opening it's got this orangey hue to yeah, the whole it does, whole it? deal yeah and yeah it looks a lot like these movies we saw yeah the invasion of the body snatchers it sort of had this same sort of Opening really, the invasion of the body snatcher had that same sort of opening, a bit of a voiceover and a fellow sort of. It sort of started towards the end and then it recapped back. Yeah, and then likewise, Soylent Green also had a similar sort of opening. Mm. Uh, so it was it was in that genre. So I was sort of expecting that, mm-hmm. but what I wasn't expecting, which caught me by surprise, is this is a British science fiction film. Yeah, and there's a distinctly different feel to it. It does uh, the camera work, the editing, the dialogue the interaction and interplay of the characters, all just decidedly British. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah. And uh, so that, that pleased me. I, it very quickly indicated that it was going to be uh, a, a different sort of film compared to some of these other Hollywood films we'd seen of this, you know, age. Yeah. And that intrigued me. So it, it lured me in very quickly, mm-hmm. I think, with its the camera cuts and the, and the movement of the camera, which is 
unusual uh, for this time period. Yeah. They didn't do a lot of moving cameras or quick cuts. Yeah, for sure. And uh, how about you? What did you notice about this, the difference, say, between the British style and the Hollywood style? Well, I think the... Well, I think the fact that this isn't like a... I don't mean superheroes in Captain Marvel, but I mean like the hero is a journalist, mm. but he's not a journalist that's about to pull out a, you know, AK-47 and take on the Russian military. He's for... not an ex-war uh, yeah, zone reporter. No, and, and I think also he's he's deeply flawed uh, due to, you know, he's he's gone through a bit of a nasty divorce and only gets to see his child randomly and is kind of, I guess, bitter and given up on life. So he's quite a, it's quite an ironic character, isn't it? It's, it's almost like he's given up at life and at the start of the film, and I mean like not the not the start where he wanders along and tells us the start of the story, but I just mean the actual start mm. of the story. He, in his life's journey, he's kind of given up when the rest of the world is ticking along and this disaster starts happening, yeah. which means the end is coming. Perfect for an alcoholic, depressed yeah. <laughs> person that's given up. But in fact, that kind of engages him and bring, starts to bring him back into obviously his old investigative journalism yeah, sort of style. So he's a hero because he knows... He's got the gift of the gab and can kind of try to sneakily get the story out of people when others can't and then write that story to tell the masses. So it's a bit of an everyday hero and I think that that when you think about that type of character that is quintessentially English, you know, it's 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 not the underdog like Australians, but it's definitely um trying to be the average Englishman in mm. a way, you know, they're representing that they're intelligent, they're a bit dog-eyed, but they're not the big macho superhero, you know, person that you get, John Wayne, maybe. I'm just trying to think who's in the 1960s in the States, but, you know, that, that, that sort of hero of the day that's going yeah. to stand up to the big bad force. Um, the other thing, I guess, and we have warned, we have done the warning, you'll find this in Australian films as well, is like the ending... Well, it does end and it's a very satisfying ending. You and I were just saying mm. about non-satisfying endings before we press the record tonight. It is a satisfying ending, this one, but it's not that sort of traditional everything is wrapped up. Um, it's sort of left a little bit open to whether the earth is well, saved or not. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> But he is saved, right? Like, I so, think one of the reasons it is satisfying know, is because it, it is true to the theme and nature of the film. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about the it's an everyday person who's the hero and we're taking from the point of view of the common people. We're not following, you know, the, the Prime Minister or the President of the United yeah. States or an Army General or an Air Force Captain who's on hard times but then has to fly and kick us. Yeah, it's not, missiles, Tom, it's not Tom Cruise coming out of retirement. It's, just, it's like an ordinary dude who's, who's been kept in the dark and they're trying to fight to get some sort of a truth. Mm. And the ending keeps that kept in the dark looking for the truth yeah. feeling to it it's interesting eh which is yeah which leaves it and because i think i think it's because it stays true to that that you leave the film going ah oh, that was really really interesting very cool yeah you know, mm. i came out feeling somewhat optimistic yeah that but it yeah it leaves it ambiguous mm. in a satisfying way i think yeah and that's more english so you know definitely more european cinema yes than, uh, than, you know, Hollywood. Well, if, if we looked at the um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was 1956, so five yeah. years earlier, mm -hmm. 
that finishes with a totally everything saved and we're all okay. Yeah. You know, all the trucks were intercepted, the pod people were captured. Yeah. Um, and the military's taking control of everything. Yeah. It's all, everything's good. good. Yeah. And that's how it ends. And you say, oh, okay. Whereas it very easily could have been left with, you know, we managed to run down, you know, two trucks. How many did you say there were? Yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, I don't recall. We or don't, maybe there was two. Or was there three? I'm not yeah. sure. You know, like it could have left it ambiguous of like, are we all pod people? <laughs> uh, but it, it didn't. Yes. Okay. That's pretty good. Did you have a favorite scene? Uh, I really enjoyed... The uh, scene where, uh, what's the main character's name again? Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. Yeah, Peterson and his new girlfriend. I'm just not being very um, genie. Genie. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, this this to be fair, this was uh, um, a week or so ago. I watched this, so you know, got to be a little bit uh, forgiving of me. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Peter Stenning. Is that it? Yeah. Peter. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, Peter goes into Jeannie's apartment and he's uh, wet from the rain and, yeah, there's there's just this sort of interesting interplay where he's sort of going, well, you know, we could make a night of this. And Jeannie's like, yeah, I mean, you're nice, but, you know, I'm I'm really not sold on you. you <laughs> and it's just not what I'm up for. No. And he pushes his case a little bit. But when she says, look, no, sorry, it's just not going to happen, mm. he goes, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. And then it's just kind of this back, background joke of him being a hotel lodger. And like, like it was just, it was quite a, a charming little interchange mm. of, I suppose, an insight into that 60s British concept as well. You know, there, there was no sort of um, melodrama involved and there no. was a bit of self deprecating humor in it and quips back and forward and you know Jeannie didn't say that there's not a chance you're a creep or anything she's just like yeah well you know it's you're a bit fresh at the moment mm. it's uh let's let's give this a couple of days and see how it settles in and then we'll move on from there yeah and but it was it was entertaining the whole time you're just wondering is this gonna be uh you know like a home run for this guy that because <laughs> he's yeah alcoholic and he's clearly still torn up about his divorce. Mm. So it's probably not a good thing for him, but maybe it would be. And then it's probably not a good thing for her because he is a bit messed up. And yeah. and so it, it, it goes on and it leads you on for a little bit back and forth, back and forth. But it ends so nicely. In fact, I think this is where he decides that he's only drinking instant coffee. Yeah. He, he stops booze and he, he starts refusing it. Because yeah. it's like he's found purpose in his life. So that's like a, this character turning point. So that scene was very entertaining. It's um, a lot of sort of double, a bit of a double entendre talking and yeah, there was some quick awesome back and dialogue. forward and, and yeah. uh, very entertaining. I, I don't know how they wrote that dialogue without genuinely, may, maybe they did get actors to act it out and they go, oh, no, not quite, change it here. Now try that one, you know. Cause well, I, think, I think looking into Wolf's, Background, he, he has written a lot, so mm. I think it's just probably a master writer really playing it out there, you know. Yeah, so, maybe he's seen it enough now, he, he, he can just, yeah, rip it out. I mean, I think the more you write, the better you get. And Wolf, as before this script, he'd um, yeah, he had a really well known novel, he's written a couple other plays, um, so yeah, I mean, and they're all you know quite successful at that time. And he and he kept going on and having a career like this, so. Um, his whole adult life was uh, writing, so yeah. Was there some sort of aspect or feature in this film that that caught you? I was going to say normally the question would be what sort of science, but this is a a, 
historic piece. So what sort of speculation or insight into Britain, you know, did you get from this that you like? Uh, well, I think what I probably said before that the global warming thing, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, it's the we look at global warming and it's the frog in hot water, meaning that, you know, the planet is slowly warming up and we're not reacting quick enough because we are like frogs in Boiling water. <laughs> it, it's it's hard to Where, take a small change now and extrapolate yeah. that into big dangers. I mean, see, I mean, like I can walk along. We very um, lush here where we live in Mandra, Western Australia. And you can walk along the coast, and at this time of year, you see, you know, the the oceans fired up. It's ripping away the sand, and quite naturally doing that. But then I've been doing this for the last six, seven years, walking along the coast here, and you start to go. Oh, that tide is a lot higher than maybe it came up last winter. But mm. I wouldn't scientifically be able to tell you that. That's just sort of purely observational. Mm. So I don't actually know. But then I think, okay, but that's but then it goes back and oh summer looks nice again and all tropical and beautiful and all those sorts of things. But then maybe next winter it comes up a little bit higher again and it just starts damaging the structural integrity of the coastal lining here where we are in Western Australia. Mm. Uh, but again, it's a frog in hot water, isn't it? Because every year it does that and maybe it creeps up a little bit higher. But, I mean, even in my lifetime, maybe it's not going to kill me. Yeah. Or it may not but, even damage one of the houses, yeah. In our children's lifetime, it might rip away the whole coastal line. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's why my you house know? is on the hill. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the estuary could rise by a couple of minutes. But, hey, if you're in uh, Papua New Guinea or Fiji... Or the Maldives. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, the next 10 years are probably a bit do or die with how fast that's going to rise. So, yeah, but I liked... And, you know, quite often these disaster movies do this. And I do feel, because I had not seen this film before... You know, there's films like um, Moonfall, uh, in fact, anything by Roland Emmerich, a big Hollywood director, makes all of those disaster films. But The Day After Tomorrow, um, Mm. which is kind of, you know, fast-forwarding global warming, and even Independence Day, this film does a lot of that. Oh, it it even mentions Western Australia, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. We all cheered at that. Yes. Um, Which was, again, how engaged the audience was. We were getting rain, apparently. We were getting heaps of rain. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, which would be, you know, equivalent for us. So the, the, but it did do that, this film, where it talked about some of the cities and a weather pattern and extremities going on across the world. And and that reminded me of, you know, Independence Day, how you have that sequence of cities and, you know, Sydney's one of them and it gets blown up by the alien ship. And, you know, quite often in these films, that's what they do. They show New York and Sydney and Beijing and London and it's, you know, disasters in all those zones. So I, that stood out to me in this film is that, yeah, what global warming could look like if it was like put on fast forward really quickly um, because London changed from a really wet normal probably London or just a bit too wet, like they were kind of joking at mm. the start of the film that it was a bit too wet, then all of a sudden it was warm and then they had the warm mist and then they were in a... Oh, no, no, sorry. No, there's the other way around. I'm, no, I'm, I'm going there. So it was really wet. And then they had a they had temperatures higher than ever. They break all the records, and then they had the heat mist. Yeah. And then straight away after the heat mist, they had a real sort of wild storm that kind of like a, a cyclone, I yeah. think, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Cars have been blown over yeah, and yeah. all sorts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they kind of went through that very um, quickly, and it, then I, they were out of water. 
I'd, I'd be curious to know. I, I didn't look this up, and perhaps one of our glorious listeners who is more historically oriented, uh, the history of disaster films. Where where does this one like? Yes, because it it follows timeline. a pattern, as you said, and there's certain imagery and tropes used, mm. which I've definitely seen following on from this in you know movies in the 70s and 80s and the 90s there, where there was a bit of a, a big boom of disaster films again, yeah, where there was, was they the even 90s, remade the Poseidon Adventure again or something did, yeah, apparently, yeah. but there was you know day. Light, I think it was called, which is Stallone being trapped in a tunnel. Yeah. And then there's like Dante's Peak. And then yeah, there's like oh, a, the other ones, some there? sort of uh, volcano. Twister. Twister. Uh, and yeah, on, on they go. There was, there's a whole bunch of them. But they all sort of follow uh, the global ones. It sort of follow a similar pattern. Mm. And I'm just wondering, is this one of the first movies to do that? Is it yeah. that being acted as a bit of a template blueprint? Yeah, so, I mean, and at Armageddon and Deep Impact, you know, that they, they sort of do it. Deep Impact does it a bit differently because it actually does take us through those different characters' mm. storyline. But Armageddon definitely follows that very traditional. Yeah, you know, like so. If if you are thing. a bit of a cinema history buff on disaster movies. on disaster movies, <laughs> like uh, maybe know. I'll look it up after the show. But yeah. let's let's find out. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. Okay, so just quickly before we get into the plot, um, what, what's happening with Space Brain Science Fiction Film Festival? Well, the film festival is on again. We've already oh, started. What? Yeah, we've Second al- year. already started getting entries we in have. the early bird. We have. Uh, I would recommend that you get cracking, either it. make a film or finish post production on your latest film. Yeah, get it in. We've got student um you know category we've got music video so if you're a a music act and you've got a somewhat science fictiony theme or a little story in your video clip yeah get it into us we want to see those uh we've got you know there's feature film as well uh and any number of other you know best actors and so forth so if you're an actor in a science fiction film get onto your director writer producer and say hey why am I not in Space Brains? I did a fantastic job and I should win a prize. You definitely should. So all the information you can find out at filmfreeway.com. Uh, no, that's just .com. Uh, is where you can enter your film. If you don't know about Film Freeway, go check it out. Uh, but, of course, you can find us on our website and socials, all the information. Don't hesitate to ask some questions. Um, but I think it's all pretty self-explanatory. But if you're a filmmaker, start cracking. Make a film. Get in there. We'd love to see it. Okay, so let's get stuck into the plot of the day the Earth caught fire. Yeah, okay, well, it starts off a guy drops a match. Woof, it goes up. <laughs> Bam. Bam. End of story. The end. Credits. End well, yeah, so the day the Earth caught fire, 1961, directed by Val Guest, written by Wolf Mankiewicz and Val Guest, yeah. and it stars, uh, obviously, sadly enough, <laughs> oh, you know, Apparently, Michael Caine was one of the police constables. Yeah, it's, 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 it's I, I was going to say this. This like this is um, sixty years ago now. Yeah, sixty-one years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, so I don't really recognise any of these uh, names here. Well, but- the thing is, uh, Edward Judd plays Peter. Shenning, um, and I, I kind of recognised him a bit, but not major. But Leo McKern as his 
offsider journal, oh, you know, yes. he's very recognizable. I do recognize yeah, him somewhere. Um as Bill Maguire and Janet Munro, I do not I don't know. But that doesn't mean anything. No, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I'm not a huge nineteen sixties British cinema kind of fiend. No, that, so they're probably all big names at the time. They probably were. So um quite often actors in this era were very good play actors and you know, TV actors and film actors, especially in Britain. Um, interesting enough, just another little side note on Wolf was he was kicking around the first James Bond script um, with a couple other writers. Oh, yes. And uh, that owned, they owned, one of the other writers owned the character of James Bond. Whatever the backstory is there, I don't know. Look into it for us. Um, and Wolf decided after a while that he wasn't liking it and wanted to get his name away from James Bond as much as possible. Probably it regretted was go- that decision. It's going to flop. Yeah, he was starting to feel, he thought it was a bit of a stinky idea and he was he withdrew his kind of support of it. No. So he came back years later, they got him back on in, involved in it and I think even maybe, I don't know, Casino Royale or something, one of the ones, I don't, I don't know which one it was, something a bit more recent in the 90s, whatever he, he was involved in. So, yeah. Probably missed that boat, unfortunately. Wolf, Wolf made a bit of a bad decision. Uh, so the film was shot in London and southeast England. Principal photography included Fleet Street, Battersea Park, and little bit here I recognise the Pink Floyd album, <laughs> uh, which has the famous smokestacks of Battersea um, Industrial, you know, what is it, uh, Generator? Yes. In the background. I can't remember which album that was. Yeah, it's, I don't it's know. It's probably which like one Pink Floyd, Flans. Flans, fans listening going, you can't remember the name of that. But anyway, there you go. And the actual Daily Mail, they shot in the Daily Mail. Oh, that was a real <laughs> mail. There you, there you go. Yeah. And, you know, in Brighton, the Palace Pier and so forth because yeah. the, the fun park is a bit of a location in this film. Yes. The budget and, you know, £190,000. It doesn't make much sense to me. That yep. would be, I mean, in today's money, that's what, $380,000, $400,000 Australian? Still not bad. Which isn't a bad, no. you know, budget considering the the locations involved and you know, yeah. a, some actors. You could you could actually film this at that budget today if you picked, a, you know, some cheap actors and yeah. didn't mind going for a bit of equity, that sort of thing. And good old Val said that no people weren't super interested, so he did a deal where he gave up his profits from a previous film he had done called Expresso Bongo, which was a huge box office hit for Val yeah. uh, a few years earlier. So he gave up his profits as collateral to make this film. Whoa. Yeah, uh, and and this film was successful. Yes, it made a small profit. <laughs> made a small profit at the time, but um, yeah, it was actually considered a critical and commercial success. This hey, one, look, so. yeah, as as uh, some other filmmakers have said that if the producers or the you know the investors get their money back plus the, what are their required interest, they don't care how no. big a profit it is, so long as they they made their money back. But that is a question that maybe we can raise with producers in the future so we can have that conversation on Space Brains and find out, well, what is... I've heard that um, some other investors, they look at a 10% return is what they want. So, um, you know, the ones that... But, it's you know, it's a complicated thing. I know Luke Sparks talked about this a fair mm. bit online and there's a couple other producers I know, they talk about, you know, they're, they're happy to make films but they want to get about that 10% return on their investment so yeah you can understand if they didn't really like a a film it's interesting not sci-fi but i I watched um another british film called sing 
Is it called Sing? Sing. Yeah, and it won the Oscar for the best song. Called Sing. Oh, that's that one with a pig in it, right? No, <laughs> I know Sing. Yeah, that's Sing like that. Maybe it's not called Sing. What's it called? Something music song. I don't know now. Oh, just. I oh, know you'd pull in at me. I know I am. You've caught your disease. But anyway, and that was the same thing. That director, he gave up his fee just to make the film, and he gave his fee to the actors. Um, oh, and nice. Yeah, like he just just to pay just to pay them, so he got no pay for the film. But luckily enough, the film went on was a huge success, oh, won an good, Oscar, good. and blah blah blah. So, yeah. Um, so we like to break the narrative structure into a good old fashioned three act structure. You need that satisfactory end, don't you? Sorry, you do. As you you do. experienced recently. Not that we'll name names, but no, there was a movie that I watched recently feeling. where I was like, I, it, it left me flat. Yeah, like I, I, the film finished, and I was sitting there going, "What is that? It? Yeah." Oh. And so the whole point, and this film does it very well, is you need at least a three act structure, and that three act structure needs to be set up with something super interesting. And characters that are engaging and worthy for the audience to follow for 90 minutes or for 120 minutes or whatever, right? Like, so the film needs to start with an act one where we have an interesting opening image. We've got to get involved and get stuck into what is this film about? And we've got to pretty quickly, around the 12 minute mark, roughly have an inciting incident or a catalyst or something that we as the audience go, ah, yeah, okay, now this is what this film's about. Yeah. And we have to be invested in that audience. We've got about that 12-minute mark. Uh, I, I've mentioned it before, Aaron Sorkin, Oscar-winning uh, uh, screenwriter, written great stuff for TV as well. He, he's like, T movies, people are there in the dark. They've got, you know, you've paid 15 bucks. They've, they, they'll hang around for a bit, but after a while, if they don't like it, like you were just saying, not satisfied, they can just leave. So um, they want their money's worth. And so you've got to hook them with that inciting incident. From there, there needs to be a bit of a debate, like a bit of a questioning of the scenario of like, do I do this or do I not do that? And then, they make a decision which kind of hurtles them into the second act. And what happens in that second act? Sorry. Well, the second act is going to further what we call the plot. So it takes this catalyst event and you probably have a few questions in your mind, like, well, how is this going to work out? What's that going to happen? It's mm. like, And the second act is going to start out by starting to play with the answers to that, start showing the results of this. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have um, the... I guess it's the fun and games. It's the you you've referred to it as a trailer. Yeah. And if you you look at a lot of movie trailers, they they'll usually have maybe one quick shot from the opening intro, and then they'll have a whole bunch of quick you know snapshots out of the the second act, and they'll leave the third act completely out of the trailer. Mm. And but in the middle of the second act, you're going to have a midpoint. So this is a point where we kind of explored the initial obvious premise, the the promise of the premise. We've we've been, had that delivered. Cool, that's what we want. Now it's got to get serious. All the repercussions of the decisions and actions made mm. and maybe some further development which drives the story towards it. You can see now the story is heading to a conclusion. Mm. Like you can't just keep building up and up and up because where does it end? It's like it becomes, you know, that uh, TV series Lost. You know, where there's, there's, there's no point where you go, ah, I can see now it's on the downhill slide. <laughs> so the midpoint has got to be that. You've got to have some sort of point where you can start saying, Things have turned. Usually, they get more serious. Yeah, 
and you're no longer exploring the world, you're now trying to solve or survive the world. And that comes down to these things like um, uh, the bad guys closing in, which in many films is literally bad guys closing in or Dark Knight of the Soul, this whiff of death, which is like some sort of something's come, been some opportunity has been cut off. It could be a literal death or it could be a relationship is broken or... Mm -hmm. Any number of other things have a dream has ended. You can no longer that avenue is is being cut off, which we should be left as the audience going, oh no, what? Hang on, what what's it going to do? How's this going to happen? Because something we've seen enough foreshadowing and enough drive and plot and character built mm-hmm. so far that we we know this isn't the end, but we just maybe we can't even see how it's going to develop to the ending. Mm-hmm. And it's this death which gives us this inspiration. The person gets a bit of insight. They go, you know, damn it, I'm not going to let this set me back. Or I was like, I, I can't give up. My son is relying on me, mm-hmm. you know, or something along those lines. It's usually something referencing an occurrence earlier in the film. And we move into Act 3. Mm. And what is Act 3? Well, you've gone on that journey, sorry. You've, I have. You've, you know, as a character, sorry has been disturbed by his catalyst. He's debated it. He's gone through a journey of, oh, maybe this is what I should do about it. Maybe this isn't what I should do about it. Oh, I'm having some fun. Oh, I'm not having some fun. Oh, things are serious. Oh, crap, I didn't want to do this. Oh, no, this journey has gotten very tough. I don't know. Oh, someone's dead or my idea's dead. And then where do I go from here? And then, okay, actually, I'm going to try this idea. Yeah, get a plan. Yeah, get a plan. And that's really act three. So now I'm acting out this plan and I'm gathering resources and people and things and tools and all those sorts of things and I'm going to fight, like in this film, I'm going to fight the weather. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I take on the planet Mother Earth. You're going down. Here's my AK-47. And, um, you know, that's the whole point is like, you know, having a crack at what you thought was the answer to the catalyst. And lo and behold, most of the time in a really good uh, feature narrative, oh, that plan doesn't quite work. No. And maybe something is surprise, surprise hit you or, you know, the bad guy actually had a, you know, an, an ace up the sleeve. You know, the corporate uh, identity actually does have a get-out clause in your contract and you can no longer work for us. Um, the underdogs don't show up and they forfeit their last game. Yes. And, uh, or, you know, the alien does invade and, uh, you know, the military is overtaken. So that, that quite often can happen. And then in that sort of disastrous moment, that character really needs to reflect on their whole journey and go, ah, oh, you know what, after all, it wasn't, the weapon, it was inside me all along. It was our friendship all along. It was our friendship all along. In fact, if we're going to die today, Surrey and I, we had a go at being space brains and, yeah, that's all that really mattered. It doesn't matter. We we use that as a bit of a joke but and it is now become a bit of a cliche joke, that whole, the real treasure was friendship all along. (laughs) But that that's come about because that is the classic end of third act. It is. You know, Twist, which is the twist that open up the chest, its treasure chest is empty. Yes. But then the final victory is realising it was all inside all along. Yeah. And the friendship overcomes the alien invasion by just love. Aliens don't know what love like is. Tom Jones right. music. Yeah. And so that actually wins the day and they 
overcame their major obstacles. So that is our three-act structure. And, and then you might have like a bit of a happily ever after at the, at the end to the story. So that kind of takes us in full circle. So let's narrow down some of those key points for the day the earth caught fire. I loved how this started. You mentioned before it's like an orangey, tealy, um, overcasty kind of vibe, isn't it, mm. at the start? And we get this real lone figure come out of the mist. Um, I think we also have a police car on a very deserted uh, London street telling us that the bomb is going to detonate or something in 10 minutes. The detonation um, will be in nine minutes. Whatever it is. 17 and, minutes. But we're basically showing this London that is deserted, um, it's a bit broken, there's cars overturned, there's rubbish kind of flying around. Um, it's very bright and dry and orangey and this lone figure comes creeping along. Now, that is a... First of all, I'm just going to say, that's cool, like London deserted, right? Mm. Like, that's cool. And then also, it wasn't... The special effects were done by good old matte painting, so painting the background, you yeah. know, so painting a London street. So they used to do that on a lot of films. Yeah, and I said um, um, they used some forced perspective with models. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the overturned cars was a, a model yeah. car. You, you could just tell that the shadows yeah. weren't quite big enough or yes. soft, that the edges were too sharp. Yeah, but but, but for the era... But look, it looked good. It looked good. If you, you know. if you weren't paying too much attention. Yeah, and, I mean, then that's what... You know, when this lone finger figure comes closer to the camera, we sort of, you know, you're following him. Who cares about the background? You know, like mm. you're interested in what's this guy stumbling around? And he stumbles into the Daily Mail and he picks up the phone and um, we see that the Daily Mail, which you'd imagine would be a hive of activity normally, it's no one's in there. And he picks up the phone and he kind of goes through and um, a young woman answers and they do do a little bit of banter straight mm. away actually and this is because this is Jenny. And then he wants to tell his story. So he starts telling his story. And um, this is where we get the good old... Do, 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 flash. Three months Scooby earlier. Scooby-Doo, the shots uh, sort of melting into each other. And it is, it's three months earlier. And we're, we're now just to a sort of a black and white. Mm. Uh, it's almost like the reverse of the... What was it? The Wizard of Oz where it's all black and white and it goes to Technicolor. Yes. Which was like, you know... An absolute revolution. Revolution in the time, yeah. And I remember as a kid getting annoyed watching the black and white going, oh, it's one of those old ones. Yes. Like old, maybe it was <laughs> like know. not too much older than I was. My but... mum used to, we used to watch, um, uh, oh, no, what's happening in my brain tonight? Phil Collins on a Saturday night here in Australia. Oh, yes. Playing the really old movies and, yeah, they, sometimes they're the black and white and straight away you're like, oh, black and white. Yeah, but ugh. the funny thing is though, if you... Forget about that. Yeah. It's Many right. of them are very, very good. They're very the ones that have survived through to be replayed now. Yeah. They're actually really yeah. very good. Yeah. Such as this one. And and it does, it changes to black and white, which is a stark contrast to the uh, orangey colour. You know, you've, mm. it's clearly much better. And the office is just chockers with people. Yeah. And... And uh, there's people just talking constantly. There's this answering phones, yeah, yammering back and forward. Activity, yeah. um, this this is our opening image, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. The the opening image has it's him walking down the street, and we get introduced to a couple of the characters, hmm. and then we we have was this the um, catalyst where we change over to no, no, not, not yet. This is the setup because this, this is, is like. 
the Daily Mail and the busyness and the and then we learn about him. So we're learning that very quickly. We're learning that he's like a bit of a dejected journalist. He's not the top journalist. He's mm. he doesn't used, really he care. used to be he, at, at the top of his game. The, and... Yeah, there used to be his colleague is heavily invested and he kind of jokes, oh, you got to sober up enough to tell a story and where were you last night and did you ever leave the pub? And, you know, like there's there's a lot of sort of impressions that he used to be a good journalist and mm. now it's just kind of like he's living day by day, not really caring. He's checked out. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, there's a great line he says in this opening bit. He says, um, alcoholics of the press unite. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is part of this quip, you know, this wit that he does have, which I think is his version of Save the Cat, right? Like yes. he's is that, yeah, he's a depressed alcoholic who's given up, but he's kind of funny. He's kind of funny. And, yeah, and he's, you know, like there's he a charm has this to that. relationship with his um, fellow writer who's, yeah. and this writer, he seems to be the science writer who's, mm. Uh, heavily leaned upon by the rest of the newspaper to get sort of facts and understanding, mm. which is important because then he acts as our view into the story later on. Yeah, and and his friend Bill Maguire, the veteran, um, does seem to be, even though he's kind of a bit of a bitter old journalist or like a maybe a bitter is too strong a word, he, he is really full of encouragement to try. He's trying to get him back. Yeah, he's, he's, he's carrying yeah. him, really. Yeah, he really writes, his, writes, his, um, writes his report. Yeah, so to me this is all, and it's heavily rainy and they kind of joke about how heavily it's raining, but I think most of us would stereotype London as a, yeah. as a heavy rain. Well, <laughs> I sort of, I felt a little bit um, of connection there with last year we had here in Mandurah, we joke about how there's never rains here, but we had the the wettest July and August mm. on record. And my wife and I, we noted that it was it was pissing down, if you don't mind me saying so, the whole month, like mm. month and a half, it was just pouring nonstop. Like it was just, and it was heavy. Was that 2021 or 2022? Yeah, last last year. What's the year now? 22. 22. Last yeah, it's winter. 21, last yes. Winter. Yes, last winter it was just the the heaviest rain. The whole we were stuck inside. The spring um, school holidays mm. were just home ridden because it was just pouring rain the whole time. And when I was when they were joking about the rain here, and I'm thinking, oh my god, it must be really, <laughs> really rainy there for them to to notice it. So to me, the catalyst happens next. Basically, is the discovery that the weather's a bit off. And then them actually saying that the Soviet Union and the United States simulated detonated these nuclear bombs. Yeah, we get that so news in saying the Russians have detonated a bomb. Yeah. We heard about the, the American one yeah. and that was kind of by and by. And then the Russian one came in and uh, is a Bill Maguire sort of says, oh, when uh, when did they do that? Oh, it was this, you know, yesterday afternoon. It says, well, where did they do it? Siberia. Yeah. What's the time difference between yeah. Siberia and Antarctica? Mm. Where the Americans and it was like that's that's sort of that was where I was going. Ah, oh, this is the bit because you know that the world's going to be catching on fire. Yeah, but you don't know why or how yeah. or what whatever. That was indeed the part. While watching this, I went, "Oh, okay, they're they're going to say that nuclear bombs are doing this." Yes, still didn't know what this was. Whether it was just um, a, a reaction, chain reaction in the atmosphere, or mm. what. Yeah, so they, they didn't. That was the thing. So the catalyst to me is just them discovering that the bombs went off at pretty simultaneous times, mm. but not at that point. They're not actually like, oh, that causes the weather. They're just 
that recognition of those two mm. to me because it's like if they didn't if that didn't happen, the world doesn't change, does it? Doesn't catch fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got no like if if things progressed and the world kept getting worse, but we had none of that reasoning for it. It would just be a list of events occurring. It's a story, no plot. Yes, you know, like we go, okay, so what? It's raining here. Oh, now it's hot. Why? Like none of and, that makes any sense. And I guess actually, it's interesting you're saying that because that's kind of Stenning's grief because he's sent off to the bureau to begin with because it's raining so much. Well, and to he, him, he's he, like, oh, this is a crap story. Yeah, because Bill Maguire is the other science editor and says, oh, well, how about, you know, Peter, how about you get a hold of Sir What's-His-Face, the, yeah. the head of the meteorology? <laughs> oh, good old And sir, he goes, okay, so he he calls up the, the meteorology and gets... Uh, he gets temp, Jeannie. Jeannie, who's temping on the uh, desk. So she's not normally uh, a phone operator, yeah. you know, and he's he gets a bit grumpy and short with her and... And she says that she's normally from the pool. So he says, well, why don't you go back there and drown in it? <laughs> Which is kind of funny. It's a bit rude in that, you know, it's like go kill yourself. Yeah. But but more like it's the typing pool. Yeah. And, yeah, go drown. I mean, go become one of the faceless minions. Like that's mm. what the impression I got was it was this double thing of, yeah. of drown it but also just return to the anonymous pool that I don't have yeah. to talk to. You're just one of yeah. the bunch. Which is quite dismissive. Yes, and that's and that's why he he does he. Uh, I think a, a little spark of his old self. He's got to still get that through because he could could have just gone. Yeah, couldn't get through. Yeah, but no, he he's got fine. You don't think I can do this? I'm going to get in contact. Mm. And so he does. He he runs off, and that's um, that's kind of the you know getting in towards. The uh, debate, you know, it's yep. like he's going, yep, yeah, I'm going to go down and talk to the, the the head down there, and but he gets rebuffed a bit as he goes in. They, you know, he has to sort of trick his way in. He he walks in and says, oh, you know, I'm going to the the press office. That's on the same floor as Sir Watson's features, isn't it? And the yeah. security goes, oh no no, Sir Watson's features is the floor up. The press office is not that important. Mm. Um, you know, press office is only level two. Yeah, oh, radio, yes, of course, level two, and so. He goes up to level three, of course, mm. which is yeah, quite clever. Yeah, and I mean, I think what we're seeing there is just that he's a you know he's a good journalist. Mm. He is a go getter. He's a go getter. He knows his way. He knows how to sort of scam the system a bit. And uh, yeah, anyway, this is where he does meet. Um, he's trying to get this temperature day, and I suppose on one side, this is where he's getting lots of rejections. He's, mm. he's not. Get, the government is not just handing over this information. And this is a theme for the whole film is that we're not, and you and I, and we talked about this with a few people after the film, it was interesting this disaster film is not the normal one that we see now where we're in the White House. We're yeah. privy to the science, the key scientists from yeah, the, the hero know, is... Windsor Castle and they're telling us all the data and showing us some sort of graphic this film is very... I liked that this film was more from the masses and so Stenning is the masses. He's representative mm. of the masses by being just a regular journalist and so here he uses his best wits, actually better than probably you and I would be able to achieve but because he speaks to one guy and that guy shuns him out and then he tries to come into the office a different way and, and then he starts speaking to the receptionist and then even when all that doesn't work, he still goes to the press gallery. He goes you know, down there regular, and asking for... The, you know, tonight's bulletin. Yeah. He says, oh, yes, I've just been asked to 
check that the tonight's bulletin's gone out okay. Yeah. Which clearly he's trying to get a look at uh, maybe some information that hasn't been public yet. Yeah, that's right. So he's 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 trying every trick in the he's got to to get and he and he's succeeding to a point. And um but there is there's this straightaway this we're introduced to it's not just like, oh hey Stenny no boy, yeah sure, come on in, I'll show you the latest government data. You yes, know, of like course. <laughs> of course for Stenning, anything, you know, like no, it's like no, no, get out of here. You're not allowed in this office. And um, I did like that. I liked that this film does not just show us everything. No, and, and we're not privy to everything. Well, we're, it was also interesting that his his reputation had preceded him. The mm. the fellow he first spoke to knew of him. He's and knew that he used to be a, a good journalist, and now who's a, a little bit less so. Yeah. And Why would I talk to you, Stanley? Yeah, so I don't <laughs> want to talk to you. And and. What's this? And even if this was in the past, because Stanley sort of raises, you know, we used to be good friends, we used to have good contacts. He says, well, even if this was that still time, I still can't tell you. Yeah. And, yeah, boots him out. And and that's where he ends up with, you know, bumping the genie again, because she's back down uh, dealing with the pool sort of stuff, the typing pool. And he he asks for the uh, evening release, you know, to hoping Mm. to get a look at it. She remembers him. Mm and is a bit short with him. And I, I saw this online. They described it as this is where they meet cute in a um, in, in, in apostrophes. And I'm like, meet cute? Wow. Okay. Like that's a 1960s, 70s, you know, it's like basically flirting, but the way they flirted in this film is called meet cute. They're meeting cute, were they? Yeah. <laughs> if you're out there and you've meet cuted someone, cute. or met cute someone. <laughs> I know. It's hard. Ah, yeah, after I, I, I met cuted my wife, yeah, and right. <laughs> I dragged her off on the floor until she recovered. Yeah, that's it. Um, mm, tasty. So uh, they do. They set up this band, of course, because he was rude on the phone. She's not impressed. Um, she kind of squashes him back and he's, down. He's so. trying to backpedal a bit. Yeah, and um, now now he's met her in person. He doesn't mind how she looks. <laughs> my, my, she's a fine-looking bird. That's right. I don't oh. know why I'm doing like, what is James Cagney? Yeah. <laughs> That's um, see, she's a fine bird. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, he he. This is where again he does disappear, but overnight, and Maguire writes his story. So well, that's because he's caught it in the rain. Yes, he gets caught in the rain. But what? I mean, it's only rain. Sorry, why didn't he come to work another day? <laughs> well, well, we're going to annoy our audience if we talk like that the whole way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying it's only rain. Yeah. So he got rained out, but it's implied that maybe he got rained out at the pub, I think. Yes, he, yeah. he got rained out at the pub. Yeah. Well, he couldn't go home. He had to stay at the pub, couldn't he? Mm. So the weather, so there's a change here, but the weather changes from pretty rapidly from raining heavily to then heat. Heat, yes. And so, like suddenly there's a montage basically very quickly that it's hot and... In that, to me, that is the break into two. So there's like a, a drastic change suddenly in the yes, story. Yes, and we also get him, He he's changed too because he's visiting the pier with his son, mm. as I understand. And suddenly you sort of see that he's he's uh, sober and he's not, you know, he's, he's, he's nice. He's a bit of a he's, different guy, yeah. he's, he's a dad who really just wants to sort of spend time with his son. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, that's only because he doesn't live full time with him. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but, he's, yeah, he wants to meet full time with his play with his son and and the nanny's kind of a bit oh, I'm Shirty, not sure short. you know what's going on there but they he said well, I think of, the nanny's like it's that typical thing that you you know as a parent where it's like 
Yeah, sure. Take him on the ghost train. Take him, and she even says, she goes, yeah, but now he's going to have nightmares and you're not there for the nightmare. <laughs> yes. You're just there for the fun bit, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like when the grandparents take them out and see a horror movie or something, you're like, well, that was fun for them then, but at night I'm going to be dealing with it, aren't I? But we're sort of getting now some of the promise of the premise is this yeah. relationship with between Peter and Jeannie. Yeah. Because he bumps into her. She's sunbaking. She's sunbathing. Don't mind and, the look of that, <laughs> as he says. And, and he comes over and, and joins her and has a bit of a... Of course he joins in. Uh, they, you know, they meet cute a bit. Yeah, they do keep, they <laughs> keep meeting cuting. They keep meeting and... <laughs> No, I don't. I don't quite I'm, get it. I'm not sure I work that phrase into uh, future no. sentences with people. I think meet cute. Uh, I don't mean to meet cute, but darling, <laughs> you're cute. Oh. Yeah. No, so this is where language changes over time, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it also Shows goes you. to show how much more um, uh, eloquent oh, Peter Standing is than mm. myself. Uh, so, so they they do they they kind of progress a bit of a B story. Yeah, they do. They do. It gets it gets more and more serious. Um, and this is where the fog rolls, and this, yeah, they go rushing up to have a look at the. Oh, okay. So am I? I'm I'm jumping ahead. Am I? A little bit. I think the city swelters. We get more of the government not answering. Oh yeah. Um, the the newspaper publishes and writes the stories. Um, yeah. So they've been. Yeah, and then yeah, that's where you're up to. They're right there. Yeah. So um, that's standing. Yeah, they're chatting up. They banter. And yeah. they go, yeah, the fog rolls in. The fog rolls in, which, of course, means that Denning can't get back to the paper again. Yeah, again. But this time he manages to get back to Jeannie's house. Yes. Which is where, humorously, he tells, he does call the paper from her phone yeah. and tells them that he's at Club Jeannie because <laughs> they're expecting him to be at a pub or a yeah, club yeah. or something, you know. And Jeannie doesn't realise that until she gets called later on and asked you know, if it's Club Jeannie and she's like, what? Yeah, so this is that scene that I liked where they sort of yeah, it's a great band doing scene. their little flirtation. He's sort of trying it on a bit, and she's still like, "Yeah, no, I don't, I really don't know you that well." Yeah, um, but she's a nice woman. She's letting him sleep in the bathroom yeah. on the floor, and he, he suggests maybe he's just sleep at the tub. Yeah, you know that way, you know, because he's all washed up. Yeah, um, and then you know, and she does. She she says, "Well, you know, I think he says, oh, what, what what would be one reason that you would kind of be with me?'" And she's like, "Well, first of all, the drinking, you know." And so he puts the drink down. Yeah, so yeah. He, he quite significantly because he's he has his um, whiskey bottle out and yeah. then he puts it down and he goes, "Oh, okay, well." I think he was hoping that that would be enough, but for her to invite yeah. him into the bed. Yeah, and then, and then she's then still she like, shuts yeah. the bathroom door, you and he's a bit like, "Oh, damn." Yeah, that's a good start, yeah. but you know. <laughs> But it is, um, it is nice. It's a nice little sort of character development for him. It's there, a great cover to develop. He's, he's intrigued by this woman who is um, as quick-witted as he is and not willing to simply let him charm her. Yeah, and, I mean, it's clever writing here, right, because the weather has gotten severely worse. He can't even walk back to work or he can't get back to work. We're seeing the trains don't work, the buses aren't working, Cars are kind of like, you know, crashing into each other. No, the airport is after divert airports, traffic. Yeah, the airport's kind of closing down. So, and the fact that he can't walk back to work, I mean, it's implying how severe it is. So uh, this is where the newspaper discovers that, or Stenning discovers that, how does he discover this? I'm trying to remember. He discovers that the weapons tests have had a massive effect on the Earth. Yeah, well, he's talking with El Maguire. That's right, And yeah. sort of 
saying, yeah, what could cause such a thing? Because they're finding out that uh, there's New York uh, is in blizzard and there's this That's heavy right. rain. That's where we get the West Australian reference. Yeah, do this big this stripe across the globe, yeah. you know, um, down across West Australia is included. That's it. That's it. That's and, it yeah. And they, they're going, well, what could this be? And, and all the rest of it. And says, well, it's almost as if the uh, the earth has, you know, changed its axis. Yeah. Seasons have changed. It's mutation, as they say, altered by 11 degrees. But no, that couldn't possibly be true. Mm. And, you know, they, they, at some point they do get confirmation that, in fact, yes, it is true. So that's the tilt of the earth that normally gives rise to uh, the seasons. So... I wasn't clear if it was increased by 11 degrees or decreased by 11 degrees. So mm. normally it's at about 22 degrees. Yeah. So the, the sun here uh, at the heat, the height of summer, the sun is 22 degrees further overhead, north, south, further south. Yeah. Or should I say at the deep of winter, it is 22 degrees further north than it is in summer. Yeah. So... That's why we, we have our eaves at a certain level mm. so that in summer that change in angle of the mm. sun lets in or stops the sun. So if it's another 11 degrees over, it's going to completely screw up their seasons. Totally. Yeah. I probably, probably I think they were trying to indicate it's increased by 11 degrees yeah, because think I'm, so. I'm thinking that would mean daylight would be a lot like you'd have almost constant nighttime in the winter parts, or the other winter hemisphere and almost constant daytime. Further south, like the Arctic can pole, but the colors, the the Arctic circles would yes. have shifted, and the equator would have shifted. Yeah, and I mean, he, it, I think Maguire does mention something about the he's a whole new equator, mm. something like that, you know. So, and when you really do think about it, you're like, yeah, how would that work? Because yeah, which way have we shifted, and the whole thing would yeah, rebalance. I, I think I'd have to grab myself a globe. Yeah, and, and but then even then, it. would it actually? Because I mean, I've heard scientists talk about. Even with the tide, the way the tide works isn't us just turning. It's that there's the water is, what's the word? It's like because of the gravitational pull of the whole earth, the water actually is there. So it's actually, it's going, We it's almost like we move into the water and out of the water, mm. which is a totally different yeah, way to you imagine. Like you think, oh, no, we're turning and the moon's turning and it's causing, no, like it's kind of actually like there's a blob of water, yeah, which is really weird. Like I never thought of it that way. Yeah, and 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 the water at the equator is spinning faster mm. than the water at the poles. So <laughs> you get that's where you get hurricanes and cyclones. Yeah, you get that. You know, one goes clockwise, one anticlockwise. Yeah. Uh, I know. It's and so if you then shift that eleven equator, degrees yeah. across further, <laughs> the water doesn't instantly. No. Shift with it. Like it's still 11 degrees off. So you, and indeed the Thames goes dry mm. at some point here, which you sort of think would have to mean that the ocean would have to have receded mm. somewhat. But yeah. there you go. And, and well, I which guess actually, it's probably. Yeah, with that blob, that blob analogy of water would be true. Yeah, that would be true because you would almost, like the earth would shift so that, yeah, something like a river, like the ocean could go out one way. Mm yeah, it would, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think accurately they've done the movie. Now that I think about, it. <laughs> yeah, they, pro- they probably did it fairly accurately. So um, the newspaper discover this, and they they've had their brainstorming, and so they set about. Um, there's that great scene; the editor kind of sets them all into action, doesn't yeah, he? Remember, just... like 
go get the helicopter, go up, get shots. You're going over there and you're getting the story. I'm getting this chief. Yeah, call around to all the minister, get other him on the throne. I don't places, care where he yeah. is. And, you know, tell them that we're going to print this newspaper article with or without them. Like he really actions them, doesn't he? Yeah. You know? And we had this, this, yeah, massive storm output. Yeah. Uh, and, we get then uh, solar eclipse happens ahead of schedule. Yeah, this to me is the midpoint. Yeah, and again, it's using a visual clue, yeah. cu- clue cue, which is uh, the eclipse yeah. because it's it's very obvious change in tone. Yeah. Where and eclipses are traditionally a sign of, of ill omen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the, they are. They're always they are these, a bit the, scary, aren't they? Yeah, I've, I've never seen one. I, I expect they must be somewhat scary. Well, in a movie, they seem yes. to always be scary. Yeah. <laughs> There's supposed to be one happening here yeah, in soon. WA uh, next uh, year. Yeah, next year, pretty soon. So I've uh, maybe we should probably try and go along to that and see what it's like. Yeah, up north, there um, like is going to be a really pivotal, like fantastic spot for the whole planet to go to. Yeah, well, there we Western go. Western Australia in remote WA. We'll go up there and yeah. report live yeah. by podcast, which is we, pointless be because idea. it's a recorded media and <laughs> you can't see anything. Well, we might be filming us at that stage. We could we could film, I suppose. Um, and the, ca- the cinematographer captured an eclipse. Oh, it's a, a real, real eclipse. eclipse. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So um, just as a little finger note, I'm not sure how they did that in the timing of the movie, but apparently they But this is, this is the time where the, the heat starts because yeah. we, we start running out of water. And this, likewise, I think was a, a rather British concept is that yeah. they're rationing the water so they've got public shower stalls where you have a rationed amount of showering, mm-hmm. which to me I would have thought you'd be better off when you're just like hanging out wet wipes. You yeah. know, here's, here's your wet towel to Did they towel have a lot yourself of wet off. wipes back in that era, but? Is I know, they had towels. Had towels. So I would, you I wash thought, a towel. Yeah, here's, here's, a, here's a wet towel. But, wipe then you wash, down. but then you've got to clean the towel, don't you? Yeah, but you can do that more efficiently than you can a whole bunch of humans. Especially if it's so dry, it, just, <sighs> it, would, it would disinfect itself but, in the sun. But, you know, I, just, just, I found it funny that there was this priority on making sure they set up public wash areas, yeah. showers. Very, and I was like, yeah. what about drinking water? Like, isn't that... I, know, I would have thought that would be where everyone's lining up for is the drinking water, not the showering. It seems very know, important. Because, right? I mean, like we're in one of the biggest droughts ever, Surrey, in Australia and have been for many years and yet we still allow people to just like put water on their gardens. I find it funny that we even bother talking about droughts in Australia anymore. Yeah. As, ever since a kid, as far as I can remember, we've been... In a drought. In a drought to some extent. <laughs> so somewhere. when they actually say drought, it's it's severe. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a real drought. <laughs> it's, it's, but we are an economic powerhouse that can afford to pump water out of the ocean and turn it into drinking water, into water onto your garden. Like, uh, all those I mean, lawns. Oh, oh, my goodness. So people are slowly removing lawns. <laughs> yes, I know. We're getting there. We're it's, getting uh, there. I removed mine a couple of years ago. There's a lot of people have gone... Ago, so. The artificial yeah. turf and then other people going native gardens, succulent gardens. Yes. In my old house that was sold, I had all succulent. Yeah, and uh, We all should be moving to that natural yeah. garden. But anyway, that's another topic for a different podcast. Um, so the to me, this is kind of like really symbolic of the bad guys moving in, but is what you were just saying, like public baths, no more water and they coming near taps. I think maybe it's um, bringing back that World War Two fear yeah, because you've got to think, 61, all of these characters who would have been, let's call them 30 for lack of a better age, some of them were obviously a bit older, but if World War Two was only 20 years prior, they would all, all have been growing yeah, up through their formative yeah. years. Yeah. They would have remembered... Blitz, yeah, yeah. and even after World War Two finished, it's not like suddenly all the utilities no. were back on and all the buildings no. were rebuilt. Nope. It was still would have been 
a couple of years after that, there still would have been damage and mm. problems. So the characters themselves would have seen the, the water rationing and gone, oh, we're I recognise this, this. We're, yeah. we're doing this again. And, I mean, we didn't have it with the pandemic with in terms of this, but we did have some of this kind of level of government control in terms of testing for the virus and in terms of, like, you know, rations and panic in the street mm. over these scenarios. Well, so, I do remember in the first, the first lockdown in 2020 and, you know, towards the end of March there, going into the shops and you're seeing empty, empty shelves. shelves. And I was really starting thinking to myself, yeah, at what stage do I get concerned? Like, yeah, at, yeah. at what point uh, am I going to have to start altering my food mm. consumption and, and usage behavior? Uh, yeah, because at the moment I'm able to sort of substitute with other sort of stuff I don't normally, you know, other brands but, and things. But, but even, but, and I had the same thought, mm. and it was even like one thing for the supermarket shelves to kind of be emptying out and the government talking about rations and stuff, but then you kind of go, oh, does it go to this, what this film does, which mm. is, Suddenly, the guys at a wall work at the Water Corp can't work, and you can't get water in your tap. Yes. What about them? What about if every house can't get fresh water? How would people react? Mm. Does the government hand out water rations? Yeah. You know, and then does your neighbour break into your house to get the water out of your toilet or yeah. whatever? Right. Like, so so it, or steal your toilet paper. Yeah, steal your toilet paper. Whatever. Right. So it's, it's and then once people don't have access to water and they're more desperate, what are they going to behave like? You know. Mm. And so that's what a film like this is always walking down that path. Isn't yeah. It? So it's, it definitely is to me the bad guys closing in that the government rescues that. Um, sorry, hands out that and they declare oh. a state of emergency. Um, but and- then we get that that next you know turn of the screw because it's okay. So yeah, we're tilted eleven degrees. Seasons have changed, and they've sort of indicated that there's going to be a new normal. Mm. And we've heard that phrase, yep. and we don't like it. Nobody likes new normals, <laughs> regardless of whether new good normals or new bad normals. They're like no one likes it. But that's not enough because that's only the bad guys moving in. We need death of hope. Like there was kind of this thought that, okay, yeah, seasons have changed. You know, where it used to rain a lot, now it doesn't. Other places where it never rained, it does. That's That can all average itself out. We can get through this. Pull together, you know, come along, fellas. We pull together and during the blitz. We can do it now too. Yeah, that's right. But that's when we get that extra Carry little on. blow of, you know, it's getting worse. And why is it getting worse? the heat and the mm-hmm. cooking is because the earth has not just been tilted 11 degrees, it's also been knocked a little bit off orbit Yes, and it's going to crash into the sun. Mm. I assume not immediately. No. But that's not really the problem. The problem was that within three months or whatever it is, earth would be uninhabitable yeah. because it'll have moved we wouldn't out survive. of its pleasant spot and into the no. danger spot. No, we wouldn't survive all the way until it hits the sun. No, no, no. We'd be, <laughs> be long well dead, dead. Yeah. before then. Uh, and, and so that I think that is that moment of all is lost. Like, what's mm. what's going to happen? There's this. We had this hope, and now that's been dashed. Yes. And so we're moving into um, you know that the very end of Act Two. Yeah. Uh, I will say that part of that things getting more bleak as well is that then we have a scene where Jennings trying to get to Jeannie. And he, the youth have overtaken. They're rioting. They're going mm, and wide, they're splashing water which, on each which other, which is great. They're like, yeah, they're going, oh, stuff here. We're going to splash water on each other, and they're kind of being jovial and they're smashing cars. And then we find that they've broken into Jenny's place and again stealing the water rations. And and this is that thing. Like once you start rationing humans, or you 
you push humans into a corner like rats in a cage, some are going to react and, you know, go, no, it's not about the greater good, it's about me, you know. And um, this is what's happening. He finds them in Jenny's apartment and they're just kind of like rebellious teenagers. They're not super violent or anything, but they're, they're being silly and you know, breaking down, they're, they're teasing her in the bath. And, I mean, it isn't great. She's in the bath. But then he pulls them over and they don't, again, have a proper fight or anything still, but he pushes them out and he pushes one who falls down the elevator. Yeah, I know. And, they, and the others kind of scream and yell and it's like, well, oh, yeah, this is not just fun and games. This is really serious. You know, yeah. This can lead to... This is not leading down a good path. Because this is one of those oldie elevators where you had to, you know, you could just have like an open elevator shaft. <laughs> but, and I think it's somewhere around here, the editor also says to him, I, with, you've got a son, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I do. And he goes, I'd get out of the city if I could. Mm. So this is what I mean. Like there's kind of a, as we're heading towards that third act, it's becoming quite and, obvious that it's And that again bleak. is a callback to the Blitzkrieg yeah. where they're sending the yeah. kids out of the city. Yes, and he and he does. He he rushes down to the. He packs. He up goes down there and, and he manages to say goodbye to his son, which is nice. Yes, he does. And he sort of yeah because he's recovered and because you know Jeannie's basically given him Jeannie and this story have given him the reason to recover himself. Yeah. Like so, in once other the story cracking the story has brought his professionalism back. Yep. And meeting Jeannie, who's kind of like a. a an equal challenge to him mm. has restored his social ability, you know. It's definitely th- those things are taking him into that third act. And so when he does meet his ex-wife, clearly there's, yeah, she's going, oh, what am I going to get? You know, what, what sort of serve am I going to get from this drunk lunatic? Yeah. And instead he's, he's very sort of, okay, look, just look after my son. Mm. And even the, um, the, the other man in the picture, yeah, the, yeah. his son's Big stepdad, yeah. he sort of says, look, you know, thanks. Uh, I'm glad. Yeah, because he's rich. He's. I'm. I'm glad you can take him out. Just yeah. look after him, okay? Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's like a real. You can see that's a big moment for him. That's kind of like. It's also a bit of a death. Yeah. Like you know, that's kind of. Okay, you have accepted that you are no longer that part of that family. Yeah. He's still your son. You're going to see him, whatever. But you, you're not the father. Mm. You know, you're. You're the other dad, as it were, you know, but you're not raising him yeah. anymore. And yeah. and it was kind of a bit heartbreaking to sort of see, but it was a nice character development moment there where he he held himself together and was, you know, respectable. Which he is was, nice. yeah. And that, that was, I suppose, very unlike that kind of humour, joke, bantering, mm. you know, everything's funny sort of guy at the start of the film. So, yeah, in this sort of act three, we get told that the scientists have a plan, which is to detonate all the nuclear bombs. Blow more bombs up. Blow more bombs, which is very, probably very logistically accurate. Well, I mean, (laughs) if if blowing the bombs up knocked it one way... Yeah, you'd think, well, why don't we do it the other way? You've got the only option there really is to blow it the other way. Yep. Um, Stenning, Maguire and Jenny then gather at a bar um, to basically see the end of the world out. Yeah, have a have a one last drink. One last drink. The bombs are detonated, and the shockwave causes dust. Yeah, a bit of dust, but nothing much. Because the, yeah. the countdown happens, and everyone's sitting there, and there's a little bit of dust in the air, mm. and you go, mm, okay, okay. Um, and then we kind of pan into the newspaper room, and we we have we see one version of a front page, which is the world is saved. I really like this and because there's like, this kind oh, okay. of. Um, 
time shift because we st- we're back to the start of the film. Yeah. In time period, and he does his little story, and we we go into the newsroom, and you're not sure if there's been another time shift, and it shows, yeah, world saved, plan works beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as an audience member, I sort of went, oh, oh, are they saying it all? Oh, they they yeah. got confirmation. Yeah, it must have. And then it scanned out. across like, and there's all these um printers looking. Shady, waiting, you know, waiting for the and go ahead. Scans across to the next page. Yeah. World Doom's plan failed. <laughs> and you realize, yeah. no, they've actually just prepared the, two the front pages of, of each of them. Mm. And the other nice thing are like the newspaper's still continuing on. Yeah. <laughs> like, even if the world is doomed, they didn't bother just going, let's just print the good one. Yeah. No, like, we're newsmen. We have got to report because yeah, it doesn't kind of really matter. It's like, I don't know how many people are going to be buying your newspaper or how many advertisers are going to pay to be in the classifiers of that paper. I think they'll still go. Get your end of the world gas mask, (laughs) disaster kit and whatever. Um, Shaving kit. Don't forget to shave. Look good for Armageddon. And then so that final image after that is the film ends without revealing which one will be published. And we have a voiceover from Steny which says, humanity, will humanity uh, recover after all this horror. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is that open-ending that we talked about earlier that it doesn't have the classical no. Hollywood and, ending. And again, we're left in the dark. So we, we're yeah. revealed what the plan is to fix things, but, the you know, we haven't been told by the powers that be if it's worked or not. Yeah. And I guess you wouldn't know for a while. Yeah. I loved this type of ending uh, for this film. I felt very satisfied um, and I, I also liked, and we didn't sort of touch on it, I liked how some of the montages of the film and the time sort of moving in the film, um, Val, the director, used that ability of there was one that was clocks, you know, so we went from one clock in one scene to another clock in another, so it was a seamless transition. There was also the use of wheels um, on yeah, the spinning, you know, wheels, tie, spinning the... wheels. as yeah. again time moving on, the world moves on. Um, and, and the newspapers, there's that great scene earlier where they do kind of see bits of the world and it's done through, again, newspapers, mm. um, sort of the disasters around the world. It's a pages. clever mixing of stock yeah. footage with um, generated footage. Yes, I loved that. I love that sort of editing transition that he, he decided to use as well. So anyway, go check it out. It's a really great um, film. Neither of us had seen it, so we couldn't t- technically probably say it was a classic, but I think it is quite a good classic yeah, I mean, it's, sci-fi film. It's uh, really well put together. Like like you're looking at it and, again, forget about the fact that it's 1960s and there's a couple sort of oddities in the social setting and so forth. Yeah. But it's oh, yeah, it's it's a very slick production. Yeah. The, the cutting, camera the, the camera movement, um, it almost feels a bit modern in yeah, the it way it does a lot of that stuff, yeah. which makes me wonder how much... This film influenced future films. Oh, massively, which, I Yeah, you know, if I go and have dig through and I find out it's true, then we might be able to retrospectively classic classicalize <laughs> this a little bit. Anyway, if you just put it on our regular ladder, uh, sorry, uh, which we like to put some films together for a viewing experience. I myself would put this in with, I think, as a little trilogy of watching, would be the Australian sci-fi cargo. Cargo. Which is, again, apocalyptic, end of the world kind of stuff where the father and the baby tramp across the um, countryside. Kubipedi, um, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, put the, Chuck this one in the middle, the day the earth caught fire, and then the great 
Chinese sci-fi, The Wandering Earth. I, I immediately thought of The Wandering Earth yeah. too, which is a similar theme really, isn't it? Like shifting, it, it, it is. yeah. shifting the earth on purpose. Yeah, definitely. Well, not on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so I think that trilogy would be a very interesting sort of end of the world watching. Look, I did cheat on this. And put and, and thought, I would actually think I'd like to watch this with Silent Green and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, okay. Yep. In date order because yep. it's, it's an interesting study there of uh, the, I suppose, the, the social environment that mm. informed the film. Yeah, yeah. So you look at the in 56, it's the early part of the Cold War. They're still worried about, you know, Russians or, or communists infiltrating society and kind of. Um, you know, this domino effect they're worried about where these states would fall to communism, yeah. uh, which I don't, I don't know, like communism is pretty sucky really, <laughs> as has been shown. But they're, they're worried about it. And the invasion of the body snatchers. It was a bit of a reaction to that yeah. feeling at the time. And then 61, the nuclear testing through the late 50s and obviously into the 60s mm-hmm. there. Uh-huh. Fueled this fear, well, how many bombs are going to blow up? If they keep blowing up bigger and bigger bombs, what's going to happen? What happens, yeah. Yeah. And then 73, we've gotten past the majority of the you know, bomb worries mm. and we're now into just um, food shortages. And mm. because at the time, in the 70s, we started getting oil shortage. Yeah. You know, the price of petrol was going way up. Um, these cars were underpowered. At the time, so we came out of the 50s and 60s and, you know, muscle cars were, were getting bigger, stronger, more powerful engines burning more petrol to do ridiculous, you know, power weight ratios for the time. And you suddenly and have a, you a come into the 70s shortage. and suddenly it's like petrol prices spiked and people are going, have we dug all the oil out? Are we going to run out of mm. oil? And then there's also global warming fears. Uh, even back then they're going, well, yeah. you know, how far can we go with this industrialization? Yep. And yes, be that's just, so it's an interesting sort of triple play there. So there you go. You got one of us looking at it a bit from the style of the films, and one of us looking at it from the themes or you know where the era of the film was born in, mm. uh, which would be very good viewing experiences. But let us know what your viewing films like and what you think this film would sort of match up, maybe with a partner or or with. Uh, with a trilogy of films. So, sorry, are we talking about burning? We're talking about the what? The world is burning. And the world well, we're talking about burning. nuclear weapons and what would hey. it take to move the earth? Oh, okay. Because the premise of this film is that they blew up mm. two bombs and tilted the earth. Yep, and, and the so, wandering earth does move the earth. Yeah, so the obvious question is what are we going to need, what would it take? You know, what sort of energy are we talking about? Uh-huh. How heavy is the earth anyway? Uh, heavy. Quite as young. The obvious <laughs> answer is heavy. The obvious answer also about how many bombs it would take would be a lot, but let's get a little bit more specific about it yeah, because people have asked this question. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been um, just the general sort of science fiction question asked, but then there's also the question asked about global warming, mm. which, which I'll get to in a curious way of solving global warming, right? Which we'll get to. Move the Earth. To so, so the first, yeah. So the the first <laughs> the first thing we're talking about is the question was asked. Uh, you know, in order to shift the Earth's orbit or change the spin of the Earth or mm-hmm. tilt its axis, what would we need to do? And Constantine Batygin, uh, he's a planetary astrophysicist at uh-huh. Caltech. So he's it's sort of these sort of numbers and ideas are something he talks about. Um, and he says, you know. There's an interesting point here that 
you could also, with a similar sort of energy, you could actually slow the earth down enough that you could blow it up. Wow. Wow, it was kind of interesting. So earth has kinetic energy, which is how emboldened, uh, embodied by how fast it's spinning. Mm. You know, you've got all this mass of earth that's spinning. And if you ever had a, a, a playground area with a little merry-go-round thing the kids go spinning on yep. and your kids goes, oh, I'm getting sick, get me off. And you go, well, I'll just stop it. And it's, it's really, it's quite hard to stop, isn't it? Because yeah. there's weight of this thing spinning. The faster it spins, the harder it is to stop. Uh, needless to say, the earth weighs about six times 10 to the 23 kilograms. Yeah, or 22 kilograms or six times 10 to the 16 tons, mm-hmm. which is, so it's a six with like 16 zeros after it. Yeah. Uh, a billion has nine zeros. So we're talking about a billion and then like another seven zeros. So <laughs> what's that? A hundred million billion tons. <laughs> six, Sounds like an Austin Powers. 600 million billion tons uh, is how, roughly speaking, how earth, how heavy the earth is. So... Yeah. The you work that by going it's half the mass of the Earth times its orbital velocity squared. So this this guy Constantine he talks in ergs. Mm. I had to look that up because that's not a standard um, uh, unit of measure. That's no. from an older centimeter. Like you know we have centimeters yeah. uh, certainly in Australia. Centimeters aren't part of the standard units. Millimeters and meters, kilometers that's standard units. Centimeters is kind of one of these like uh, I know extra little bit chucked in there just to make things a bit convenient. Right. Erg comes from that same level of measurement. Okay. And it's it doesn't really matter if he uses ergs or whatever. It's just a, a rating of magnitude we're talking here. So the Earth's energy is about 10 to the 40 ergs. As you can imagine, that's that's a one with 40 zeros. It's, it's a lot of ergs mm-hmm. for all <laughs> of the ergs are. And so the yield so from what was called the Starfish Prime bomb test, which is a one megaton. Uh, so that's, I believe, the Hiroshima bomb, what people like to think of as being very devastating, was about 12 kilotons. So this is like 100 times the size of that. It's, it's a big bomb. Uh, so that's 10 to the 22 ergs. So you can see there's a power of 18, 18 orders of magnitude difference, which you think, oh, that's that's not too big. You know, that's, that's pretty close, isn't it? But that's 18 zeros, so that's, uh, that's a billion Billion. So, in, in fact, he's saying here you're going to need 600 billion billion or, or 6 billion billion nuclear bombs of that size. Wow. Uh, which. That would be a lot. That, that's a number so big that you kind of, I, you know, I, I think this, uh, I worked out if you created nuclear bombs at the typical rate that we create nuclear bombs, the sun would expand and engulf the earth before we finished building enough bombs to yeah. tilt the, you know, change the... However, the gravitational binding energy of the earth, which is the energy to counteract the gravity holding the earth together. So the earth wants to suck the crust and everything down to the center, mm-hmm. but at the same time it's spinning really fast. And so it wants to throw all of its mass off. As, you know, like the kids on the, the uh, merry-go-round. Once the vomit. If the centre of the merry-go-round is heavy enough, like you've got a magnet there and the kids have got belts on, the metal magnets on it, it would suck them in. But if you spun it fast enough, the kids you know, would fly off. Mm. You'd overcome that power. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the, the gravitational binding energy of the Earth is 10 to the 39 ergs. So if you tried this experiment and amassed the necessary amount of weapons, 
you would actually have 10 times the energy needed to explode the Earth. Mm. You'd have 10 times the energy required to break the gravitational force and have the crust of the Earth fly off into space. That's interesting. So it would actually be easier to blow the Earth up than it would be to alter its spin. Yes. And, and likewise, we've got Luke Dons, the senior research scientist of planetary science and space at Southwest Research Institute. He had a very similar answer. He answered, though, in joules. Uh, joules are, a, I, can, I can give you a better thing. So one joule is if you take a tennis ball mm. and just sort of toss it relatively gently to someone and, you know, when you catch it and you feel it hit your hand, yeah. that's one joule of energy you've just had hit you on the hand. Right. About a, a, a gentle tennis ball throw. So if you multiply that by... 10 to the power of 33, uh, you would have the Earth's energy. Right. Wow. So, again, we're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of billions of tennis balls. Yeah. <laughs> which, which would you rather be hit by? <laughs> One Earth-sized tennis ball or 100 billion billion Ten tennis ball-sized Earths, yeah. which uh, I don't know. So, And then he, he worked out a similar thing being that you're going to need yeah, a billion, billion of these big bombs. Uh, interesting answer came from volcanologist who said, if the largest and most explosive volcanic eruptions on Earth didn't send us towards the sun, then I'm pretty doubtful that a bomb could. I've seen estimates of eruptions being the energy equivalent of hundreds to thousands of times the energy of the bomb that devastated Hiroshima. And that is not taking into account the largest eruptions from volcanoes like Yellowstone or Taupo. Mm -hmm. So things like Krakatoa. Uh, and even just Mount St. Helens and things, it just themselves were natural explosions much larger. But this brings me back to this interesting question about solving global warming. And, and in June 11, 2021, so just last year, it was during a congressional hearing, a Republican representative, Louis Gohmert of Texas, asked a US Forest Service official if her organisation or the Bureau of Land Management could change the orbit of the moon or Earth to reverse the effects of human-caused climate change. And oh, it sounds like a dumb idea, but you suddenly make, well, actually, what does it take? Because we've got one way of doing it, which would be to reduce our carbon dioxide production yep. and remove it from the atmosphere in some fashion. Uh, but yeah, if we're saying that's going to take too long, could we just shift the Earth a little bit further away from the sun mm. so we get a little bit less sunlight? Um, to equal it out until we get rid of the carbon dioxide and then we could just shift the earth back. Right. Right? You know, I don't know, maybe that doesn't take much. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's achievable. So this uh, scientist, Scharinghauser, says, okay, let's have a look. So a three degree centigrade decrease in temperature to counteract the current and near future anthropogenic warming uh, would require us to move our planet an additional three million kilometers from the sun so already I, I think you and i are thinking and i said that it was like 600 million billion tons of earth <laughs> and we've got to shift it three million kilometers it's not like we've got to shift it two inches yeah. and you go oh shit okay maybe, that, that maybe you know like yeah. that that would be a, a rather cataclysmic explosion that would do that but possibly, possibly. okay so some back of the cal uh, envelope calculations going, we'll talk about how heavy the earth is. It's, it's great big. Um, we need to have a look at but, well, maybe the global electricity production. How much electricity do we generate? Uh, 10 to the 19 joules each year. So 10 to the 19 compared to the 10 to the 31 we need. It sort of sounds a bit close, but that's only 
0.00000000002% of the energy we'd require. And that's assuming we could convert it 100% efficiently into movement, which we can't. It'd be more like about 20%. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's like that. So if we took all of the Earth's current electricity generation and somehow like uh, the wandering Earth yeah. were to fire it through big thruster, it would, yeah, 10 to the 13 years probably before we got any shift and the, the sun would have exploded, you know. <laughs> We don't have to worry about it. Global warming is the least of our worries at that point. But so anyway, there's another option. And this is an option that's been put forward, for example, for asteroid mining. So the idea is that what if we could get there's, there's some big asteroids like kilometers across out floating around and they're mostly iron and they embody enough mineral wealth to basically surpass the Earth's total value of all mineral production mm-hmm. for its history. Yeah. Uh, so if we could get one of those nearby, we could mine it and build stuff. That'd be great. Yep. And it would be cheap. You know, you could actually just carve off bits and shoot it down to Earth, to unoccupied areas. So one idea there is to basically fly a nuclear bomb out and you set the bomb off nearby, uh, not on it, because what you're trying to do is vaporize some of the rock and that ejects out and acts like a rocket thruster and blasts the asteroid towards us. Yep. So that's kind of cool. So we could do that maybe for the Earth drop, you know, explode some nuclear bombs. It shoots a little mushroom cloud and some stuff out and it pushes the earth a little bit. So we would need, and, you know, only to detonate an atomic bomb every second for about 500 years. Uh, these would be big uh, atomic bombs too, not, not little baby Hiroshima bombs. <laughs> Which, of course, needless to say... Suddenly our global warming becomes insignificant compared to the damage we'd be doing with one bomb every second for 500 years. Not to mention the fact that 500 years we would have been able to address global warming normally (laughs) without nuclear bombs. (laughs) So, so yes. So in this movie, we, we have the, we are given the premise that Russia and America set off two bombs and to hurdle us to the sun, they'd have to be doing that every second for the, for hundreds of years. Um, to even start to shift us. So you can rest assured that we don't really have to worry about that. We would destroy ourselves well before we were able to move the earth, which is nice. I was reading somewhere else's, and I didn't bring it here, but uh, analysis on what happens if every human on earth ran in the same direction all at once. Could we slow the earth down Mm. or speed it up? That's interesting. Because we've got 8 billion of us and we all sort of go, let's run east to west. Mm. Uh, and that would, um, would that speed us up? If we ran from the east to the west, yes, that would speed the Earth's rotation yeah. up. Sunrise would come earlier. Yeah. The, the, the answer is no, you can't. Like, <laughs> not significantly. There's just not enough heavy enough people. Yeah. But the theory would be that if everyone did it for long enough, we would slowly increase the speed of the, uh, the Earth's rotation. Yeah, right. Wow. So uh, it's just some, just some interesting things here. It's um, obviously for the sake of a plot and a story you need to sort of suspend certain realities um and whether that be the reality that martian soil is actually toxic itself so you mm. couldn't grow potatoes in it uh, easy enough just to go well let's pretend that it wasn't so toxic <laughs> that's one little thing aside uh, and in fact if you came along to our film festival you'd have heard hm war uh science you know and nation but they call environmental scientists and author talking about terraforming Mars mm. and addressing the soil problem. Yeah. The 
Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's it. That's that's the science then of awesome. trying to shift the earth with nuclear bombs. Um, a foolhardy endeavour, but one worth knowing the boundaries of anyway. And, I mean, the whole point going back to this film is a warning is, of course, you could do something that does tilt us a little bit and then you can't go back. You know, and that's the thing with all those ideas you're talking about. Mm. I just keep thinking... Yeah, but if you're dropping all those bombs, like, what's the outcome of that? Yeah, I, I, that's whenever I hear the uh, geoengineering solutions to mm. global warming, I just sort of think it's just so much easier. It would actually be easier, cheaper, and more reliable for just to stop all oil and coal production. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, we'd run out of electricity, we'd all go blackout, there'd be food riots, there'd be all sorts of devastation and problems. Mm. But you know what? We wouldn't be producing carbon dioxide. <laughs> Uh, and within 50 or 100 years, we'd go back to normal. Yeah. Uh, that's a far, yeah, and we know the outcome of that. Yeah. Like the outcome of that would be, yeah, a lot of people would probably starve and, and there'd be wars and it would be nasty. But once it did return back, you could start introducing, you know, renewable energies and continue on. Yeah. But if you, I don't know, seeded the atmosphere with iron or sulfur, whatever it is they want to do, or you put a shield barrier <laughs> against the sun, you know, all these sort of outrageously big geoengineering, you're sort of going, oh, is that going to, you know, what sort of other horrendous follow-up is that going to have? Yeah, is that the old woman swallowing a fly it problem, is. I was isn't just it? Like, say, it's introducing the cane toad to Australia yeah, to solve the, one problem that leads to then a whole other problem. Uh, and you're just like, just, you know, let's just stick to the way we, we know works. <laughs> Uh, it's how about it's we just uncomfortable. reduce carbon? Yeah, let's yeah. just slowly, let's just fast, more fastly reduce carbon. Well, we actually have the the finance and technology yeah. to do it immediately. We yeah. we could basically shut down coal plants yeah. as quickly as we could build replacements for them. You know, yeah. either that be nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, yeah. batteries. We could do that in yeah, probably in a decade. Oh, well, we I'm could sure. totally replace yeah. all carbon use. Yeah. You know, if, We'd have, we to make a, a we'd have to make ago, a lot of sacrifices, but yeah. maybe that's worth it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Certainly, well, certainly better than possibly destroying the world. <laughs> that's right. Okay. So that brings us to the end of the day the Earth caught fire. Go check it out. It's a great sort of classic sci-fi um, horror film from Britain. Um, from 1961, go check it out. Let us know online what you think about it and it, whether it should have been a classic mm. or not. That would be great to know. Uh, if you're listening to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, give us a rating, give us some five stars or leave some feedback. And likewise, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. on our website and, of course, TikTok, yeah. yeah. And, of course, YouTube. I said YouTube. Yeah, you said TikTok, said TikTok twice. TikTok twice. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I just want to say I've just, put up our, I've just put up our workshop. Yeah. Our podcasting workshop has gone up there uh, and more workshops will be going up there they shortly. Uh, if So if you missed out on the, the film festival, you can catch that stuff there. Yeah. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to give us a bit of a help and hand. Yeah. It let us it it just it helps immeasurably with our uh, reach and lets more people discover the joy of science fiction. It does. So, next episode will be 90, sorry, which yeah, means this was, a classic. This was 89, that's 90. Yeah. 90 a classic. Mm. Well, I reckon 
let's continue you know plumbing the depths of the earlier decades <laughs> and this time uh, it's the blob blob the blob the 1958 i was just yeah, trying to remember right the back. name because it's the blob is a bit of a classic of the creature feature genre it is. so we had things like creature of the black lagoon which is mm. 54 i believe mm. you had them mm. or and it came from the outer space yep. and yep, 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 yep. Uh, any number of these other these creature feature films, the blob. Uh, so We're going to the blob. So the blob good that great. it got remade in 1988, oh, 30 years remade. later. It's been remade a few times. And uh, the 58 one, I'm excited to see. I haven't seen that one. Oh, haven't I, you? No, I saw the 88 version, which itself Ooh. is quite a good film. I've seen this one. I've seen this one a couple of times. So I'd like, I'm looking forward good. to seeing this one. Uh, put it in context there with the body snatches, yeah, uh, this oh, film. Let's see how that goes. Fantastic. Can't wait. Until then, see ya. Bye. Bye.